Welcome to the documentary on one. A few years ago, a Cork school student was working on a project on local history when she came across a remarkable piece of information, which in turn has led to the documentary you're about to hear. Narrated by the person who wrote that school project, 20-year-old Saoirse Sheehan, this is I Am To Be Shot. Let's try to imagine something. You spend two weeks with someone, you share meals, sleep in the same room, chat, play cards, tell stories, sing songs, you come to admire each other. Then, at the end of the two weeks, you're told to shoot the other person. That actually happened in my home place at Dunhamore, County Cork and it happened 100 years ago this year, in 1921. The people who spent two weeks together were a local IRA unit and a man they had captured, a British Army officer named Geoffrey Compton-Smith. Incredibly, while he was in captivity, the IRA allowed him to write letters. Dear General, as a result of my disobeying your orders and wandering about alone, I have been captured by Sinn Feiners and am to be shot in a few minutes' time. May I ask you to make it known that it is my last wish there should be no reprisals on my behalf. I am sure the feeling is bitter enough already without our adding fuel to the fire. I believe these fellows are idealists who are doing what they earnestly believe to be right. For our part, let us try to forgive, which is more salutary and far more difficult than to revenge ourselves. years, the people that fought for our freedom, they were great people. I heard this story from a neighbour, Michael Toomey. You know, there were men captured in Dripsy Ambush and they were to be executed. He pointed out a place high up on the hillside near Dunamore. He told the story about a British Army major held hostage by the local IRA. And it was... You know, it was quite a natural thing to do, to capture one of the enemy, hold them hostage. I was curious about these people. Who were the IRA men? After all, they were my neighbours' fathers, grandfathers and great-grandfathers. How could they spend two weeks with a man and then shoot him? And I was also interested in the Englishman. How did he end up being captured? And what kind of person could write such letters just before he was about to die? Um, my name is Sirshanee Khan. I am 17 years of age. Um, I At the time I first heard the story, a couple of years ago, I was still in school and looking for a topic for my Leaving Cert History project. So I decided to do it on the local IRA and their hostage, the English officer. Major Compton Smith, who was a British soldier. This is me speaking back then. He came to Cork and was captured by the IRA and he became quite friendly with the IRA. I discovered that the officer has family still living in England and I made contact. So my name is Rupert Peplow. I'm Geoffrey and Glad's grandson. As an aside, I'm studying music in UCC and play the fiddle. and Rupert plays the same instrument. Rupert gave me some of his grandfather's letters for my project, but he also revealed to me that the Major was captured because, perhaps, he was having an affair. Dear Sir, 
If you could tell me exactly where my husband, Major Compton Smith, was first captured, and if he was quite alone at the time. So, who was Geoffrey Compton Smith? The man who would become the hostage. He was born in London in 1890. When he was 16, his mother died of cancer. Geoffrey and his siblings were left with a father who was domineering and eccentric. Bad enough for the boys, but worse for the girls, because Geoffrey's father had no time for females and no use for his daughters. No time for women, a bit of a misogynist. Geoffrey's grandson, Rupert. Geoffrey was completely the opposite. He was much more comfortable in female company, and I think to some extent that was probably his downfall. Geoffrey was artistic and wanted to go to art school, but his father insisted he join the British Army. He did, however, do a drawing course in London at the Slade Art School, and there he met another student, Gladys Lloyd. I was constantly in those days being told, I saw you, Lloyd, with a tall, dark man, etc. Gladys wore her hair short and smoked. She was outspoken and flirtatious. Well, she was very extrovert, and I think that's what he found attractive in her. I was marked down as a doubtful, shady character that must be preached to tactfully for her good. Rupert says Gladys knew what she wanted in a man, and Geoffrey had those qualities. It sounds a bit facile, but she always seemed to go for a man with a strong, long nose, a Roman nose, and my grandfather had a rather strong Roman nose, which he found attractive. Also, he was tall, but she was short. He was dark, and she was more Celtic-looking. He found her attractive just simply because she was more sociable and also artistic as well. So they had a reasonable amount in common, but also quite a few differences. She liked Geoffrey, but his army unit was sent to India for a year in 1914. While Geoffrey was in India, Gladys hung out with another art student, a man named John Nash. In 1915, when Geoffrey came back to England from India, he found that Gladys wasn't interested in him. World War I was underway and Geoffrey's regiment was about to be shipped out to the front lines in France. The week before he was due to leave, he contacted Gladys and begged her to meet him. She did and changed her mind about him. When Geoffrey next wrote to her, he mentioned, teasingly, the man she had previously been seeing, John Nash. You never need be jealous again of John Nash. He and I have parted ways long ago, and he will soon forget me. Promise me, my darling boy in the world, that you won't be jealous. Gladys and Geoffrey shared a love of art and a love for each other, and they married in Hampshire in England in 1916. She was 23 and he was 26. They weren't together long when Geoffrey had to return to the front line in France. His regiment was unusual in that it included the writers Robert Graves and Siegfried Sassoon. In his diaries and letters back home, Geoffrey showed his own literary skill. This is written from the front, north of the River Somme, near Fricourt. Everything outside your entrenchment is absolutely deserted, absolutely still, absolutely lifeless, except perhaps a rag of some clothing or a piece of sandbag which has been blown out of the trench into the barbed wire and flaps dismally in the wind. But there is always noise of some sort going on. 
perhaps if it is quiet, only the occasional crack of a sniper's rifle, more usually various noises near and far, booming of guns in the distance, and the whistle and bang of dropping shells, and sometimes it is hell itself let loose, every conceivable kind of noise, the scream through the air and crashing of heavy shells, the moan of flying splinters, and countless other bangs and bumps and thumps of kinds of explosive missile. Back in Ireland, at this time, Britain was also being drawn into a war, a slowly building conflict. The Rising had, of course, taken place in Dublin in 1916. But in the following years, the focus of opposition to British rule shifted to Munster and Cork in particular. Cork had emerged as probably one of the biggest thorns in the British side. Niall Murray is a historian who specialises in this period. County Cork was one of the better organised counties in Ireland in terms of the Republican movement. There was a strong tradition of local community and even family involvement in previous agrarian and political struggles like the land wars of the 1880s. Paddy Healy, my grandfather, he was in the Fenians. One place where there was strong opposition to the British was in our own local area, Dunamore, County Cork. Matt Healy is a farmer. Actually, he came from Grandig, but this is gone, Redmond. His father was in the Dunamore IRA. He was fearless, fearless. The most fearless man, he was as cool as a breeze. Initially, he joined for a bit of adventure. It was something to do, get guns and things, as they say. Matt's father and his IRA comrades lived in the time of English landlords and drew on stories of the treatment of the Irish from the 1800s and the famine. We, we didn't own our own land or nothing. We owned nothing. We were slaves, slaves to the British. The time of the famine, said they were here over 800 years. The Fenians failed, but this, these fellows said they were not going to fail. Eh? They'd take them on. Mm. And what was it about? Was it about getting rid of the landlord? Or oh, getting rid of the landlord and get back their own land. What kind of people were taking up arms against the British at this time? The vast majority would be men in their 20s typically who would be shopkeepers' assistants, men working in drapers or tradesmen. If they were coming from the countryside, they were farmer sons or farmhands. Mars Brew is a chemist. His grandfather was also in the IRA unit here. So initially a lot of what they did was parade in local areas and promote it, encourage other local areas to set up companies. There was a lot of waiting for a military truck or a RSE vehicle to pass by and thinking of myself at my age now and them at their age then, a lot younger than me, that you'd admire their sense of purpose, I suppose, and a sense of coming together for something greater than just the individual. These were the people who would hold Major Compton Smith as hostage a few years later. At that time, on the front line in France, he was dealing with the wounds he received in battle, both physical and psychological. The physical wounds were relatively light, but his grandson, Rupert Peplow, says the psychological wounds were more severe. He had suffered from shell shock, which wasn't really officially recorded as a wound. I think he'd always suffered from depression, but it made it considerably worse. Geoffrey Compton-Smith was two years on the front line in France with regular breaks for leave back to England to be with his wife Gladys. Eventually, in the spring of 1918, some happy news came to him in the trenches. His wife Gladys had given birth to their daughter Anne. What splendid news! And how he congratulates his darling wifey on her magnificent war work. 
I am so glad it was a daughter. I much prefer them to mere sons, a very common type out here. I have rarely seen quite enough of them. That was Major Geoffrey Compton-Smith near the end of the First World War in 1918. Alongside him in the trenches were thousands of Irishmen who were told they were fighting for the freedom of small nations, including Ireland. But back in Ireland, and Cork in particular, were other Irishmen who believed Irish freedom was to be achieved not by fighting alongside the British, but against them. Niall Murray is a graduate student in University College Cork who specialises in this period. As it moved into 1918, the effort to secure arms went from farmhouses in the dead of night to attacking policemen on their bicycles, even taking pot shots at a local barracks in attempts to get local policemen to hand over their weapons. The First World War ended in November 1918, and in February 1919, Geoffrey Compton-Smith returned to England. His grandson Rupert says that by then, he had made up his mind to leave the British Army. He was offered a job in the Ministry of Food, but uh, his sister Betty persuaded him not to. She didn't think it was suitable. I just can't imagine that he would have been happy in a desk job. So Geoffrey stayed on in the British Army and things got busy again because in August 1919, his regiment was deployed to Ireland. I think initially he was very excited because he was a, a keen yachtsman and he sailed his boat over there. In 1919, the troubles weren't too bad, and I suppose they felt that fairly soon they would be resolved. It didn't quite work out like that. Occasionally, Gladys was able to come and live with him, but their letters showed there was tension between them at the time. I can truthfully say that never since I met you have I had any kind of affair with any woman whatsoever. That I have never spoken to any woman in a way that I would not speak in your presence that I have been absolutely loyal to you in word and deed. He was always happier in the company of women, and that did cause a lot of jealousy with Glad, and um, there was a lot of retaliation, so she would then flirt with men, and it would go to and fro, and uh, things would escalate sometimes. But I think they basically did love each other, but it, was, there was, it wasn't an easy relationship, I don't think. As for the dancers I live for, I have refused several invitations to such since you left. Everything you said in your last letter to me you have said many times before and I expect will say many times again and go on saying till I die. Gladys and Anne eventually moved to Limerick where they stayed in various rented houses and got to see Geoffrey at weekends when they often went sailing on Loch Derg. This was June 1920. By the summer of 1920 the attacks on Tron forces in Ireland had intensified. Historian Niall Murray. The IRA were burning barracks burning courthouses. They had attacked a lot of the income tax offices of the British establishment. The RIC needed the support of the newly arrived Black and Tans, as they came to be known. The success of Sinn Féin in the summer elections in 1920, I suppose every arm of life was now openly hostile to British presence in Ireland. I don't know how much you read of it in the paper, but one is absolutely sick of seeing everyday fresh crimes in the papers. Gladys Compton-Smith, Geoffrey's wife, was not unaware of the gathering tension as she wrote to her mother. All over the country there are ruins of police barracks and big houses. And not always for political reasons, but for purely selfish reasons, because they want the land or something like that. That was at the end of June 1920. Finally, in July 1920, 
Gladys and her husband, Geoffrey, rented a large house in Limerick. Ross Bryan House, Limerick. My own darling mother. Here they got to live together properly for the first time since they'd been married four years previously. It's a very plush house indeed. There is quite a nice garden and a small-sized croquet lawn. Don't you think we are very lucky? Also, there are two capital maids, a nice, plump, good-natured cook and a quite smart house parlourmaid with a very dignified manner. I think it was a very happy period. It was, you know, the one period of their fairly short to married life where they were very happy. Tell Kitty I shall be very delighted to welcome her here in August. However, in August 1920, Gladys's time in that dream house was over. She was told she had to leave. All the British officers' wives and families were instructed to return to England for their own safety. The British military had probably seen this as a walk in the park after serving in war in Europe if they'd been officers. Many of them had their families over here with them. Some were even had young families being born here. But around this time then, that all began to change and there was a growing recognition that this isn't a safe place for us to be operating. We know that our movements are being watched. We know that the countryside outside of the town or outside of the barracks is largely controlled and even the, the towns themselves, every other house is probably occupied by somebody who, if they're not in the IRA, they're giving information to the IRA. In late 1920, Major Geoffrey Compton-Smith was working as an intelligence officer in the British Army, stationed at various locations around Munster. But he also spent a period in hospital in Cork City suffering from the after-effects of his time in the trenches. All the while, Geoffrey and Gladys wrote to each other, often talking about their shared interest in sketching. Ballyvonair Camp, County Cork, April 7th, 1921. Geoffrey's pet name for Gladys was Billy. Darling Billy, I returned from Limerick yesterday by car and in the afternoon and evening commenced a sketch which should, I think, turn out well. This afternoon I shall continue it. I am perfectly happy when out in the wilds, and only wish I could stay here longer. April 7th, 1921 My darling little fellow, I was awfully pleased to get you a very nice letter from the camp. The country sounds lovely, and I shall hope to see some good sketches, for you'll feel so much in the Clement compared to Limerick. I am doing a great deal of drawing, quick poses and heads, etc., very excellent practice. Gladys wrote that she thought she was pregnant again. Her euphemism for her period was the word Jane. I think there is no doubt as to what Jane is up to, father darling, and I hope you'll be pleased. Write again soon. Your loving little Billy Waffle. As it happened, Gladys was not pregnant, but Geoffrey was never to know that. He was to go to his death believing that his daughter Anne would grow up with a younger sister or brother. On April 15th, 1921, he wrote to Gladys about his latest landscape sketch. Darling Bilrick, my magnum opus of fir trees and gorse, which was begun on a lovely summer evening, washes of summer and light red, has to be continued during the intervals between blinding blizzards of snow and hail. The next day, April 16th, 1921, Geoffrey told a colleague that he was meeting a friend for tea and would be back later. He changed out of his uniform into civilian clothes, a so-called golfing suit with plus four trousers. Although this wasn't the trenches on the front line in France, 
for a British officer to leave his barracks alone in Cork was the equivalent of walking straight into enemy territory. So it was almost like back in no man's land where they didn't know whether to look left or right or over their shoulders all the time. The British had been rounding up IRA suspects and had been executing them. One of the things that started to happen spring, late spring 1921, is that officers of the RIC or the British military in parts of Cork were being targeted as hostages in order to use as leverage to secure the release of prisoners, some who were destined for execution at the barracks in Cork. On the Saturday afternoon that Geoffrey Compton Smith left his camp in civilian clothes, four IRA men were sitting in Cork jail, having been sentenced to death. They were due to be shot by firing squad in two weeks' time, at the end of April 1921. There were orders that no British officers leave their barracks unaccompanied. Despite this, Major Geoffrey Compton-Smith headed off and took the train from Butterfant to Blarney. Once he got to Blarney, he got off the train and hired a jaunting car, apparently to find a location to sketch the landscape. Later, on his way back to the station, he went into a shop in the town. What happened next is recalled years later in a statement by IRA veteran Felix O'Doherty. On Saturday evening in April 1921, a few of us were in a local shop. A tall man walked in and asked for a large packet of cigarettes and the Daily Independent. He wore a dark grey hat, grey coat, fawn pants long stockings, turned down at the top, and shoes. One could easily see that he was an army man. He went in the direction of the railway station. Three of us hurried along a road parallel with the railway station. We had no arms, and when he drew almost level with us, we shouted, Hands up! On being asked who he was, he replied, Major Compton Smith. On being told that he was a prisoner, he made no reply. He, the officer, Compton Smith, wouldn't give his word when we asked that he wouldn't try to escape. He also said that he knew he had put his foot in it when he came into the shop. Geoffrey Compton-Smith, putting his foot in it, had given the IRA a prize. Matt Healy, whose father was in the IRA, says Geoffrey Compton-Smith was moved around several safe houses before being brought to Dunamore. And they brought him up to Corbrack to first night he was born for there was Ryanswood living there day. And uh, they brought him up into Corra House, he was that was their headquarters in the him. Took him back into he above the Barakar into Wines and Barakar and he was held there then. It was across the mountain they came. It was rough at the time too, like, you know. That was the route they took. This is Paddy Looney, who lives near the final house Geoffrey Compton Smith was kept in, Moynihan's in Boracoring. Uh, Two-storey house. Uh, three rooms upstairs, three down, and a porch. You can see the roof that they're falling in, and windows are out. And as you see, there was no electricity here or running water or anything. This, this was the kitchen here now. As you can see, the stove is still there. See the big beam over the fireplace. Holding up the chimney. 
Borokorang is only 30 kilometres northwest of Cork City. It's in the Bogara Mountains. The land is poor and difficult to cross. When you venture off the main roads in a lot of these parts of Cork, the hills are just row after row across the horizon. It's a great area to go hiding. The roads at the time would have been little more than tracks, twisty, roundy tracks, up and down hills that were very hard to send any motor vehicles down in this day and age. And probably even worse if you're using the kind of lorries that were being used by the Crown Forces at the time, which were very noisy. So it's going to be very easy for sentries on hills to either see or possibly first hear any approaching military vehicles. Behind Moynihan's is a bog and miles of rough open country. In front of the house is an almost 180 degree view over the surrounding countryside. Mighty view from all around, you know. But a clear day you could see into Cork City, yeah, outside the city. You could see for miles and miles all around, like. Ideal for a location to keep a hostage who is being searched for. That couldn't come from that side. It's only all bog stuff. So you keep an eye on the roads? All oh, roads, roads and fields. Geoffrey Compton Smith was allowed to write from captivity and wrote to his wife Gladys in England. Darling, while away sketching yesterday, I had the misfortune to get held up by the IRA. I am now a prisoner, but being very well treated and going strong, I have no doubt I shall get out of this scrape as I have got out of others and come through all right. Fondest love, Jeff. The IRA sent a message to the British Army in Cork that they had captured Geoffrey Compton-Smith. They said they would trade him for their lives of the four IRA men on death row in Cork jail. The success of using such hostages as leverage wasn't really that great. You had an incident where an RIC district inspector was captured and taken hostage and efforts were made to use him as leverage to secure the release of an IRA volunteer that never happened. He was executed and a couple of days later the district inspector was shot by the IRA. Not a good outlook for Geoffrey Compton-Smith. Still, the IRA in Cork held out the hope that the British Army might negotiate for his freedom and so it was important to treat him relatively well. That was the old house. It was a stable. As you can see there's only bits of it there now. But uh, it was in that he was by day then. You know, that mind didn't bite either. So what happened in the evening times, did they say? He was kept inside in the dwelling house at night. Do you know? Why did they bring him in? It was for comfort. You know, for heat and whatever. Mm. You're supposed to be a pure gentleman, like. They all liked him. He chatted with them. He wrote in his letters that he would join in with the rebel songs very heartily. Songs would describe the crimes of the old country. Yeah, he really enjoyed doing that. They fell there. He was a very decent man. Was he? Oh, God, he was, yeah. They treated him very well and everything. Mm. He couldn't get out there, he got treated like. And you also, it's quite unusual that he actually recognised the IRA as a legitimate organisation, which was quite unusual for an English officer at that time. Geoffrey's grandson Rupert says that behind the scenes, 
there were negotiations taking place for his release. Yeah, that's right. The main one, I think there was this unidentified officer who was a friend of Jeff's, and he appears to have had contacts with a branch of the IRA, and he tried to negotiate his release. Then on April 28th, 1921, 12 days into Jeffrey's captivity, news came through that the four IRA men in Cork jail had been executed. Patrick Ronane, Thomas Mulcahy, Patrick Sullivan and Morris Moore. Their bodies were not released to their families and were buried in the grounds of Cork jail. The jail doesn't exist anymore and the site is now part of UCC. I pass the monument to these men every morning when I go to college. Soon afterwards, the IRA held a court-martial in Jeffrey's absence and he was condemned to death. On April 30th, 1921, Jeffrey was told of the verdict of the IRA court. He was to face a firing squad. I'm to be shot in an hour's time. Before he was taken out to be shot, he asked to be allowed to write several letters. One was to his regiment, the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. I should want you fellows to know that sentence has been passed on me, and that I intend to die like a Welsh Fusilier, with a laugh and forgiveness for those that are carrying out the deed. I should like my death to lessen rather than increase the bitterness which exists between England and Ireland. I have been treated with great kindness. Geoffrey wrote another letter to his wife Gladys. My own darling little wife, I am to be shot in an hour's time. Dearest, your hubby will die with your name on his lips, your face before his eyes, and he will die like an Englishman and a soldier. I cannot tell you, sweetheart, how much it is to me to leave you alone, nor how little to me personally to die. I have no fear, only the utmost, greatest and tenderest love to you and my sweet little Anne. I leave my cigarette case to the regiment, my miniature medals to my father, whom I have implored to befriend you in everything, and my watch to the officer who is executing me, because I believe him to be a gentleman and to mark the fact that I bear him no malice for carrying out what he sincerely believes to be his duty. Goodbye, my darling, my own. Tender, tender farewells, and kisses your own. Jeff. After he had written the letters, he gave his watch to the Dunmore man in charge of the execution squad, Jackie O'Leary. As a sign that he showed no bitterness towards his executioners. So it must have been quite a touching scene, I think. Geoffrey Compton-Smith was then taken out of the farmhouse. Up in the bog behind Moynihan's house, a grave had been dug. Major Geoffrey Compton-Smith was put standing beside it. Well, I imagine April in Donamore would have been a very bleak time. Four IRA men took him up there. He had seen so much death in his time on the front line and um, he was quite philosophical about it. He always said that if he was to die, he wanted it to be done very quickly. What happened next was described by Morris Brew's grandfather years later. When removed to the place of execution, he placed his cigarette case in the breast pocket of his tunic and asked that after his death, it should be sent to his regiment. He then lighted a cigarette and said that when he dropped the cigarette, it could be taken as a signal by the execution squad to open fire. 
I think that was probably quite a common thing to do, wasn't it? To, to light a cigarette. I've heard of that before. Jackie O'Leary then, to ensure he was dead, delivered the so-called coup de grace and shot him through the forehead. Um, you were shot here then, did you know? He's buried up there in the mountain above, above the trees there. This is local man Paddy Looney. There he was laid to rest. I seen the grave hurt, it was like, but good hollow in the ground like. There were tough times too. What followed next was a PR mess, both for the British and the IRA. The IRA in Cork sent Geoffrey's letters to Michael Collins' office in Dublin. Shortly afterwards, that office was raided by the police who discovered the letters. They released them to the press before contacting Geoffrey's family. That was the first they found out that he had been killed. They were given no warning whatsoever, and so they read it in the papers. Glad's mother had to phone her up and had to um, break the news to her that these letters had been found and that it was almost certain that Jeff had been shot. When Geoffrey's touching last letter to Gladys was published, Michael Collins claimed that he had tried to stop Geoffrey being executed. He sent a message to the IRA men in Dunamore, but his messenger had been delayed by being stopped by British troops. When the man, with the instructions to spare Compton Smith's life, eventually arrived at Dunamore, it was too late. The Major had already been executed and buried in an unmarked grave in the bog. Worse was to come for Geoffrey's wife, Gladys. Questions were asked about his case in the British House of Commons. During the discussion, one MP mentioned that Geoffrey was kidnapped while on his way to meet a woman. This too made the papers. If you recall, Geoffrey had told Gladys that he'd left the camp to go on a sketching trip. But when the IRA searched him, they found no art materials on him. Months later, Gladys wrote to Michael Collins, trying to find out where her husband was buried. The news of this other woman was obviously on her mind. Dear Sir, My cousin, Captain Hastings, has sent me your letter, in which you say you are able to inform us that it is possible to locate the burial place of my husband, Major Compton Smith. I should be very much obliged if you will let me know the exact place, as I have been trying for months to find out with no success. Also, if you could tell me the date he was killed, exactly where he was first captured, and if he was quite alone at the time. If you know any other particulars that you think I would like to know, I should be most grateful, as you will understand what a lot it means to me. Yours faithfully. G.M. Compton-Smith. Both the IRA and the British believed that Geoffrey Compton-Smith had gone to Blarney to meet with a nurse who worked in the army hospital in Cork. Where he'd been at the beginning of 1921, it might have been a mental health issue. Possibly depression or a slight nervous breakdown. So he obviously clearly met the nurse at that point. Geoffrey had been seen with this woman at a tea dance near Blarney previously. But when she was questioned, she claimed not to have seen him on the day he was captured. Although the IRA had used women to lure the enemy, so-called honey traps, 
This nurse cooperated fully with the authorities and seemed not to have been involved in his kidnap. I think had it been a honey trap, they would have, there would have been repercussions for the nurse, but they don't seem to have been. So was Jeffrey having an affair? Is that why he behaved so recklessly and ventured out into what was enemy territory? His grandson, Rupert, says not necessarily. I think he's probably just bored, really. I mean, he obviously wanted to meet this woman, whether they're actually having an affair. I rather doubt it, but I don't know. It appears that he was going to take her to a dance at the Hydro Hotel in Cork. I suppose it was just, uh, just a bit of entertainment, really. Perhaps his depression made him a bit reckless, I'm not quite sure. Jeffrey's family were keen to retrieve his body. When Michael Collins was in London negotiating the treaty in the autumn of 1921, he was approached by Gladys's cousin for help in locating it. He promised to try and find it. But the civil war broke out the following year and Michael Collins himself was assassinated south of here at Bailnablaw. So in the early years of the new Irish state, Geoffrey Compton Smith's body continued to lie in an unmarked grave up in the bog behind Moynans. But then, in 1926, the IRA agreed to reveal the burial place. Local man, Paddy Looney. Like when, when they found him again, like, he was perfect in the grave, like, preserved by the turf. The Irish Independent wrote, The Civic Guards were able to identify the remains without difficulty when they exhumed the body, owing to the fact that the clothing corresponded with that which he was wearing when kidnapped, and of which they had a description. He was clad in mufti, wearing a golfing suit with knickerbockers, green stockings and shoes with rubber soles. On the forehead was found the mark of a bullet wound. The British and Irish governments decided to bury Geoffrey Compton Smith in the British Military Cemetery near Whitegate in Cork Harbour. In March 1926, his remains were given a military escort by a unit from the new Irish Army. They were then handed over to a unit from the British Army based on Spike Island in Cork Harbour. It was all done very quickly and I think the idea was that the family shouldn't get involved so there would be very little publicity about it. I think it might stir up ill feeling, I don't know, but I suppose the Irish wanted to move on by that stage and didn't want to go back over the details of what had happened. The following year, 1927, some of Geoffrey's family visited the grave and placed a bronze plaque there. His daughter Anne, who was nine at the time, remembers how poor the people of Cork looked and the damage still visible from the burning of Cork in 1920. But Geoffrey's widow Gladys did not make the trip to visit Geoffrey's grave. She was in Hong Kong, where she had gone to marry her new husband. She had already had an affair with John Nash, the art student she had met before her marriage to Geoffrey, and who himself was then married. She never visited his grave for at least 40 years. In the 60s, she went over to Ireland and um, I think she visited the grave then, which is rather sad, really. Choose from among my things some object which you would particularly keep in memory of me, and I believe that my spirit will be in it to love and comfort you. A keepsake she retained from Geoffrey was his wallet into which she placed some of his letters. She must have been angry, but she never presented that image to my mother, you know. As far as my mother was concerned, Jeff was always a hero. She'd heard that he'd had a bit of an affair, well, a lady friend. So as far as my mother was concerned, 
he had been sketching when he was captured. But it must have caused Glad tremendous upset, really. She would have considered it to have been a portrayal. But my grandmother never discussed that, and it was never discussed in the family. It was the same in Cork until relatively recently. The story of the local IRA and Major Geoffrey Compton-Smith was not really spoken about. Not really, no, 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 no. They never talked about it much. Matt Healy, whose father was in the IRA in Dunamore. Uh, they treated them very well, in fairness, no. Well, they didn't. They killed them. Oh, they did kill them, but they had here. They'd kill, they'd kill who first, though? Scumbags of the highest degree, half was left out of jails and everything. So they had no respect for God. No. They were here for 800 years, but until nearly 10 we got rid of them. Yeah. Eh? But should this poor old devil, Compton Smith, wasn't a scumbag, was he? Oh no, he was a very decent man. Eh? He, was, he was a grand man, but he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. In July 1921, the Irish War of Independence ended. Total deaths on all sides are estimated in excess of 2,000 people. Geoffrey Compton-Smith was just one of those to lose his life during the most intense period of that war. I play ladies football for Dunamore and we have a great team. Actually, some of the girls that I play with come from families that were in the local IRA 100 years ago and were involved with the whole Compton-Smith affair. These are my teammates and my friends. Just as Rupert, Geoffrey Compton-Smith's grandson, is now also a friend. So, a hundred years later, there is a new link between Dunamore and the Compton-Smith family. The documentary on one, I Am To Be Shot, was narrated by Saoirse Sheehan. The documentary was produced by Ronan Kelly. Gladys's letters were read by Victoria Riley, and Geoffrey's letters were read by Mark Dazebrook. Other readers were Neil O'Sheridan and Joseph Toomey. Joseph Toomey also sang The Rising of the Moon, as did Rupert Peplow. If you wish to join the social media conversation around this documentary, simply tweet us at rtedocon1 comment on the Documentary on One Facebook page or Instagram, or use the hashtag DocOnOne on any social media platform. Thank you very much for listening.